Uh, someone has asked me before, uh, how hard was it to preach to uh, an audience with really nobody in the audience? And I said, well, fortunately, my first church prepared me for that. I wasn't expecting that, but it did. I remember complaining to God those first six years, why are you putting me through this? And he must have been saying, you'll need this, trust me. Well, I have. The last probably three or four months, there have been two subjects that have dominated the news, it seems. One is the pandemic, and the other one is social or racial justice. Both subjects have divided our nation. Both of them have revealed deep biases that are below the surface and threaten our more perfect union. Both of them have been politicized. Both of them have become something of a shibboleth. If you say the right things, then this community will let you in. Other ones will keep you out. Both are something of a fault line. Uh, but as you know, fault lines can be both destructive. They desolate entire cities. But they can be powerfully creative. They create one of the seven natural wonders of the world, the Victoria Falls. It all depends on what we do during and after that fault line. More personally, I can speak to the pressure as one of the leaders that I felt and I know others like me have felt every single week that we sat on the hot seat. It was important that we would say things right, but not say too much. And if we said nothing at all, that was even worse. And so while the pressure was great, it seems the long-term consequences might be even greater. In private circles, I've had conversations about what will happen to the 30-somethings 10 years ago when they decide whether it's time to move into positions of senior leadership Will they default because they have seen in this time how much pressure leaders bear and it's almost unwinnable? My point is not that you should feel sorry for leaders. We don't want that. My point is that there are always long-term consequences to the things that we're doing. People are watching and they are forming conclusions. And so the way that we behave to each other and in front of the watching world is essential. Who would have thought a few months ago when we picked up first and second Peter that we would have found in these two letters these words from God targeting these very times. Because it seems like people today in the church, like people in Peter's day, could no longer gather. In his day, it was due to Roman persecution. They scattered them to little colonies around the province. But in our day, it was due to the pandemic. And we were forced to stay at home and meet with families or in smaller circles. In Peter's day, it was because the air was rife with controversy coming from the Roman emperor. But in our day, there is controversy due to social issues. But whether then or now, 
Christians find it difficult to gather and to grow under these conditions. And those are exactly the conditions that were true in Peter's day. As I say, they're also true in ours. And so first and second Peter became powerful words for me and for other people that were on this platform. And I hope they were for you. But the difference between the books, while written to the same audience, is that they were written probably by different writers. If St. Peter himself wrote the first one, then one of his disciples or followers probably wrote the second one 25 years later. If the fear in the first one was persecution, the fear in the second one is assimilation. We will lose our prophetic or distinctive edge. And so the first one lifts up Christ in his life and says, live like this. And the second one lifts up the return of Christ and says, we could be interrupted at any moment. Live now the way you want to be living when Christ returns. So this is the word of the Lord to us. Thanks be to God. In 1 Peter, the focus is on living a life that is exemplary and different. So Peter would say, be holy and live reverent and pure lives in chapter one, verse 17. He will say in chapter two, live such good lives among the pagans that even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. But he never tells us specifically what that good life is. In chapter three, he says that we should live a beautiful life with unfading beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit, verse four, which is of great worth in God's sight. But he never tells us specifically what that life would look like. And in chapter four, he says that we should not live our earthly lives according to the human desires in verse two, but we should live them according to the will of God. But he never tells us again what exactly is the will of God. So we finish first Peter by saying, we know this that in a day like this where people are politically and ideologically divided, our most compelling argument is not our ideology, it's our way of life. We live fundamentally different lives. They're not heroic, but they're different from the way everyone else is living. And over time, they will see those differences. But what are these differences? Peter then goes into an argument that looks like this. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Christians, you have received a faith as precious 
as ours. Let me say that in slow motion. The faith, Christians, that you already possess today is as strong and powerful as the faith of St. Peter. It is not some other faith. You have the faith of a St. Augustine or a Martin Luther, King Jr. You have the same faith, not some other faith. Then in verse three, he says, you already have everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need something more. It's already there within you. Then in verse four, he says, in fact, God has put in front of you a promise, many of them that says, you will one day participate. The word literally means to, to, to join, to unite yourself, to partner with God in his divine nature. This is a shocking statement. Peter is not saying one day when you're holy, you will imitate Christ. Peter is saying one day as you become holy, you will become united with Christ so that Christ lives his own life through and in yours. You become an extension of Christ's own being and doing. You see how aggressive that is. So now that you have the faith, you have all the power, and you have this promise in front of you, move into your faith. And this was the problem with Peter's audience. It seemed by this time around 90, the end of the first century, there were so many people that were becoming Christians, but they weren't growing beyond that. They were getting stuck. It's almost as life they have come into this, this uh, house of Christianity, but they never moved beyond the lobby. They stayed on the front porch for the rest of their lives. They never went into the basement and discovered the deep, rich traditions that underlie the faith. They never went into the attic where they looked at the mysteries and the paradoxes of the Christian faith. And they never moved into the second and third floor where they looked at the doctrines that sustained the Christian faith. It was as if the people in Peter's day just sort of professed Jesus as their savior and then they never moved beyond that. They just got stuck at the front door. And this is our problem today. By all of the numbers that I've read in different surveys, and there are many out there, it breaks down to something like this. If everyone listening right now, whether here or at home, were suddenly converted to Christianity in a single day, 10% of us 
would revert to our old lifestyle within the next year. Another 10% would move forward, higher and further in. But about 80% of us would get stuck at the front door. We would not go any further. Believing that because we have given our lives to Jesus, that was enough. We were now saved. This is the very thing Peter is speaking against. And what is at stake, says Peter, is not that you will lose your soul. What's at stake is that your life will be unattractive to people who are around you. If we do not grow, our lives are not attractive. But when we're growing, that is the best argument for Jesus Christ. It isn't a doctrine. It isn't an argument. It's a more beautiful life. So what is this beautiful life? Peter goes in to seven different words, and it goes like this. Add to the faith you already have goodness. And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, patience or endurance. And to your patience, add godliness. To godliness, add brotherly kindness or love for other Christians. And to your brotherly kindness, add love for everyone else. A few comments about this list because I think it will help us. One is that uh, this is not a formula. This is a recipe. This isn't a journey, in, which is the way that Western Christians like us typically think of spiritual growth. Stage one is faith. Stage two is goodness. Stage three is knowledge and for self-control. Thank God I don't have to worry about self-control until I get more educated. And I don't have to worry about education until I just become a good person. That would be more of a Western way. We'll just build these like bricks or we'll take steps one on top of the other as if when we reach the next one, we've left the other one behind. This is not a journey. This is a recipe. Once in a while when my wife will go out to eat and order soup, she can dissect the soup while she eats it. In my world, you just eat it and forget about it. But in her world, 
she can taste the ingredients that have been added into the soup. And so while she's eating it, she'll start naming spices. And she's saying, no, needs a little more of this. No, no, I think we need a lot more of that. Oh, they put too much of that in there. And I keep thinking, honey, don't do an autopsy on the soup. Just enjoy. But you see, when you're a cooker, you cook, you you taste those things. You see those things. The ingredients are added, not in any sequence, but they're added according to proportion. And it's never yes or no. It's always plus or minus. We've got too much of this and not enough of that. And so when you look at this list of seven qualities that we are to add to our faith, we should not think of these as stair steps. We should think of these as seasonings that the world will tell when they see us. They'll be able to know that something is missing and there's too much of another thing. The second thing is that these qualities are never a substitute for our faith. They supplement it. They express it. Or it isn't real faith. One of the most destructive ideas that the church has come to believe is that we are saved by faith alone with no works. It is simply trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross to forgive us our sins. There isn't anything that has caused Christians in North America to get stuck more than that belief. It's almost this aversion this allergy that we have to good works. But in fact, if you read the Gospels, everyone who has faith is doing something. In Matthew, they're entering in through the narrow gate. In Luke, they're crossing the street to take care of the one who's been beaten by robbers. In Mark, they're denying themselves and taking up the cross and following him. In Matthew, they're getting rid of the part of their body that offends them. In Matthew 25, they're bringing water or food to people who are in prison. The one thing nobody is doing is simply believing and then sitting there. Everyone who believes in the New Testament always expresses that belief in a series of actions, or it isn't real belief. It's just intellectual assent. And so Peter is saying, don't get duped by the idea that if you believe in a doctrine that says Jesus died for your sins, this is enough. He's saying, no, if you truly believe this, Take some risks. Do something you would never do if you didn't believe that. 
Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Said the rich young ruler. Jesus said, you know the commandments. And he named six of them. Those are all actions. And the man said, these I have done since I was a child. And Jesus said, there's one more. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. He never said, just believe in me and you'll be fine. He said, if you truly believe, do something you would not do if it wasn't true. In other words, one never believes in Jesus. They believe Jesus. They take him at his word and they act as though what he said was true. Last, all seven of these virtues, these outcomes, are ethical. They're not moral. They're not intellectual. Peter seems to say, if you follow Christ, live like this, so that when people see your life, they will say, that person is good. And they're knowledgeable, but they're restrained. They're self-controlled. They're incredibly patient. They can go through the worst crisis and they're strong. And yet, there's a deep integrity in their lives that is consistent with their professions. And you know what? They love other Christians, not just some of them, all of them. Not only that, they love people who aren't Christians. What an irresistible life. I wonder, in the last few months, as Christians have talked about these two subjects, the pandemic and social or racial justice, Have we spent so much time polishing our arguments that we have neglected our nature? Are we building an entire religion on a moral foundation? What is right and what is wrong, what is just, and what is unjust, what is good, and what is evil? Or are we building our lives on a virtue foundation that says, I love what that faith is producing in your life. 
When we engage in conversations with other people, do we listen more than we talk? Can we still hold people in high esteem even when we don't agree with them? Or have they already subliminally come down a notch or two? My concern, church, is that we are spending more time on our arguments than we are on our way of life. But what everyone notices is our way of life. So we've put a couple of questions in front of you. One, that you can talk with each other either in classes here in the church or at homes in your circles, the groups that are gathering there. One is that as you look over the list in uh, 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, uh, what one quality more than any other do you want added to your life at this time and why that one? Second, what is currently in place to help you add it? In other words, what is God already doing and what are you doing to cooperate with God? And third, if you were to measure that, say in six months, to ask, am I making progress? What would you look for in your life specifically to identify the progress? And fourth, what part do you want your community to play? A couple of years ago, Brian Fry told me a story or reminded me I'd heard it. I'd forgotten I'd known it of a few years ago when Mother Teresa made a visit to the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C. when President Bill Clinton was in office. Because it was her nature, she always brought up social issues that were important to her. And on this day, it was the issue of abortion. So she spoke in her address passionately and eloquently and yet simply on the matter of life. You could feel the tension in the room. These were not Bill Clinton's convictions. And when the dear saint finished her speech, Mr. Clinton came to the podium and said after a silence, well, it is clear that Mother Teresa and I are not of the same mind on the subject of abortion. But he said, it is hard to argue with a life so well lived. Jesus, you are a compassionate
compelling argument. Where we are not, help us. And where we are, oh, give us opportunities to talk about Jesus. Give us places where we can say your name again and give us courage. Amen.